Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. I do truly believe that if we introduce kids to the wider world around them, that we will create a pathway to peace. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jawaharie Al-Nehru, culture is the widening of the mind and the spirit. My guest today, Amy Norman, has created opportunities for children to experience global cultures for years. She's the founder and CEO of Little Passports, an award-winning children's brand that inspires kids to learn more about the world and gives them opportunities to do so. She's also a seasoned leader with 25 years of management and strategy experience at firms such as McKinsey and eBay. Amy, welcome. Excited to have you on the Elevate podcast. It is my pleasure to be here. So excited. So it's been a while we were talking. I think we met. Uh, it's just like you get old. You know, you're old when you can quantify things in decades. My guess is we met somewhere about 10 years ago <laughs> at, at some event in San Francisco. I'm glad you said it that way because <laughs> the other sign of age is I can't remember exactly what year it was. Yes. Yeah. It, it's and I and, and I have found that anything, uh, as I said, to you pre-COVID is also even even more more blurry. So. Look, I'm always interested uh, with people who are entrepreneurial, sort of whether they were started that way or were made that way. So uh, I know your childhood is a big part of your story. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience as a kid moving around a lot? Absolutely. So I moved every three years from England to the U.S., I joke that I grew up on a 747 summer over the mid-Atlantic. It was a constant back and forth. And um, a couple of things happened as a consequence. So wait, why every three years? What was that? Yeah. So, good question. My mom's British. She had moved to the US, met my dad on a blind date. They got engaged the next day. He goes over wow. to England, realizes he absolutely loves England in the 1970s and worked for IBM and kept asking for transfers back to the UK. So my mom's sitting there going, gosh, I, I moved to America because I wanted to live here. And my, you know, my dad kept wanting to go back. So um, I think it was really a personal passion of his and he made it Got work it. for his career. Yeah. So the consequence for me though, is as a kid, I had a lot of experiences that informed the company I wanted to create one day, as well as how important family was. So on the, on the company side, I remember as a small child, standing, you know, in the drizzly rain, you know, gray atmosphere in England and having um, a group of boys come up and start taunting me about Vietnam. And I must have been four or five years old. I had no idea what that word meant. And then years later, moving back to the States and being asked where I had moved from. And I said, England and some other, the kids asked me, well, where's England? And I said, that's in Europe. And they you know, asked where that was. <laughs> too. This was middle school. And so I just had a ton of experiences as a kid where I knew that we aren't um, 
we aren't raising children to hold this mindset of curiosity and interest in the world beyond their backyard. Yeah. And, and I think nowhere is that more obvious than today, right? We are becoming super, after COVID, super provincial uh, and sort of, you know, very much on my, my backyard, literally and figuratively. Yeah, we our worlds all got so much smaller in the last few years. They, you know, we we literally yeah. leave our homes, couldn't leave the country, couldn't cross the borders. Exactly. So, how did you balance the two cultures? Did you switch turning on the accent? Although the accent's probably cool in in America, you could probably still do it. Or did you did you play one persona and then another yes! persona? Or okay. yes, yeah. This, oh my gosh, no one has ever asked me this. This is cracking me up. Yes. So when I go to England, I pick up the accent. I think early on I had to choose where I was. So you can make it sound authentic, like you can do it. Well, I mean, I also, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I'd go that far, but enough. It's like you're not from where you're not from my town in England, but you're from somewhere in England, or yeah. yeah so a bit of a mix. Yeah. It's funny. I was um, I was having breakfast with someone at an event uh, a few weeks ago, and some publishers in our industry, and this this guy was talking, and I just he was dropping like little accent things. And I was like, Canadian, no, Australia, no. And then I asked him like, where are you from? And he's like, Wales. And I was like, you are actively suppressing your accent. Are you right? Because that, that is not what <laughs> he's like. Yes, I do it. Cause people just didn't understand me, but it, yeah. it just came out in like the funniest pieces. Um, because I was like, I did not get Welsh from that. So, uh, it was very interesting. My mom has a very mixed accent. She's British, but has spent the last 20, 30 years here. So you can never tell quite where my mom's from. I, I hear that. Interesting to assimilate. Yeah. And so was that mostly positive or were there any negatives of, of that? Well, I think the, the, the positive is that when you move with your family every three years, they become your center of gravity. And yeah. so I'm really close with my mom and my sister. And I was really close with my dad. He died um, right when we were founding Little Passports. Hmm. That's plus the the downside of it is there's no, you know, no concept of home base. Like what, you yeah. know, I, there's no childhood home that really resonates for me. And so I've, um, I had moved every three years and now I've been in California for, I think, 17 years. And so this, this is now home. You know, I tell my husband and my kids home is where they are as opposed to a place. You know, what's the consequence of it? I am the opposite of a hoarder. I am constantly. You have nothing. Yeah. Oh, I have, yeah. I have like nothing. I am constantly. I, I think I live in fear of having to pack up and move houses again. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that is oh, a better way to live life. You, you've got essentialism down. At this point. <laughs> I did not need Marie Kondo. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So you, you could be a testimonial. So you went to school in the U.S. Uh, and then what was your first job after school? My first job was uh, in the in the Boston area, I was an accountant. I was a CPA. So I, huh. I was always in a bit of a hurry. I, I graduated from high school in three years and college in three and a half. And I heard there was a program at KPMG where you could go to school at night in accounting and work four days a week. And that sounded great. Um, so I did that at KPMG for two years. So I was a CPA. And then what did you do from there? And then I went, um, so I was at KPMG and I wasn't loving what I was doing. So I moved into the valuation practice, which was a, a form of finance. And I yeah. liked that better, but still wasn't really satisfied with what I was doing. So then I went off to business school. I went to Wharton and I got a, a joint master's in um, international studies with a focus on Latin America. So I speak Spanish and an MBA. And that was an amazing, incredible experience. Loved it very informative. Then I went to work at McKinsey in their corporate finance and strategy practice in New York. Then I went to eBay. So I, you know, 
I was clearly not. So these are all big companies. Yeah. I was about to say, none of this was an <laughs> entrepreneurial path. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. So what, what was the tipping point? How did you, how did you meet your co-founder and what, how did this actually come about? I was uh, working at eBay and I was in my mid thirties and just starting to have kids. And I met Stella Ma at eBay. Um, she actually hired me. That's in- right. You're, you, yeah. Uh, you know, Gary, I think uh, the whole oh, collega, the yes. whole eBay mafia. Yeah. Okay, the that's, whole eBay yeah, mafia. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I think I forgot <laughs> that you were connected into that. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I met Stella at eBay and we, I think part of becoming an entrepreneur, I wish I could say I've wanted to do this since I was born. I always knew I, that is not, that would not be the truth. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I would say part of this was process of elimination of learning over, you know, t- the first 10 years of my careers the things that I liked, but also just importantly, the things I didn't like. And so then I got to eBay and really wanted to solve for a couple of things. One, I wanted to feel like the work I was doing every day, I could look at the work from that day and see the impact I had. And then at the end of six months, I could look back, you know, and say, these are the things I accomplished. So that was one. Um, And then the second one was that I wanted to feel like my work had purpose that I was spending my time working towards some mission that really resonates yep. with me. And then, you know, and Stella and I were both just having our kids. And so we knew we wanted to keep working and having an impact that way. But the price, it really crystallizes your time when you have children, the trade-off of being at home with them. And, and, and if you're off in the workforce, really wanting to have an impact and be really clear on what you're accomplishing and trading off versus being at home. So did you just decide you wanted to do something together or did you have the idea? It's a bit of a funny story. Well, so we tossed around a bunch of different ideas. One was, you know, like a jewelry business. One was this idea of creating characters because we knew kids love characters that travel the world and send packages to kids as a way to introduce them to a new country and broaden their world. So we had different ideas and we talked about them a lot. And eventually Stella calls me and she says, look, I'm going to do this. Are you coming along for the ride or not? Basically like an ultimatum, you're in or you're out. (laughs) And so I give her credit for being the catalyst for coming on this journey because I might have stayed in corporate if she hadn't been there next to me. I think being in California with the ecosystem of um, startups, it really was a huge, being here geographically really was a big you know, we all need role models. We need to be able to see people doing yeah. something and being out here is there's just so many co- people starting companies. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So did you bootstrap it initially or what was the initial goal? What did good look like when you set up the original plan? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. You know, we, because I think it really changes over time. I think when I look back at Stella and I founding the company, we knew we wanted to have an impact. What year was it? It was 2009. So right coming out of the recession. It was the absolute worst possible time. Oh yeah, it was no, it was right in the middle of the recession, yeah. right in the middle of the collapse, yeah. And we were really innovating in an area where there wasn't a lot yet. So yeah, we were trying we were out looking to raise money and we did raise we raised a small round um folks like the CEO, the um, former CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner came in, a couple of folks um in the valley um came in as angel investors. But this was in the middle of a bad economy. It wasn't a good time to start consumer. And the, the subscription box industry really hadn't started yet. There was yeah. no, you know, Birchbox was the first right. company to explode. It went from underfunded to overfunded pretty quickly. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, it was challenging for us to raise in the very early days. But the, you know, the vision was really to in the earliest days, it was literally like a letter and some souvenirs and activities from different countries. We we were focused a lot on the impact in the early days. And I mean, you've talked about you really couldn't raise VC money early on. People weren't interested. Like, was that a blessing in disguise? You know, we were talking a little bit before uh, we jumped on on like, you're kind of a anti-Valley company in the Valley. Like, yeah. does that does that feel a little lonely sometimes? Like, does it, yeah. you know, what perception versus reality of, of when you see all these tens and hundreds of millions, you know, numbers flying by? Those you you ask the good questions and the hard ones. So yeah, so in the early days, so I think there were two questions in there. Yeah. One, was, there's probably four, but you can parse yeah. them however you'd like. Yeah, to. I'm skipping on two of them. So the the first one was, you know, did we try to raise early? And I think the second was was a, a blessing in disguise that it was hard. I, I was in a conversation the other day with someone who, and they asked me, do you think earlier on in your career you may not have been as great at fundraising? And I was like, you know, I think that's probably fair, Stella. And I knew that we wanted to build a company, you know, across digital and physical that inspired kids to learn about the world. We didn't know a ton about fundraising. I, I had a finance background, but I yeah. didn't know a lot about how that game is played. Um, and so I'm sure that was a factor, as well as the fact that, you know, less than 3% of venture goes to women. If you were to triangulate that against the amount of venture funding that goes to consumer products and children's toys, we definitely stacked the odds against us. And then as it turned out, it's a blessing in disguise because we were forced to um, build the company to profitability on our own and, um, you know, and really forced to find product market fit 
early and um, and build a really scrappy business. And so we've done that and we've shipped over 10 million packages. We've got a team of, you know, 50 plus people. And because we've bootstrapped, we'll deliver, you know, knock on wood, we'll deliver a, a great shareholder return and, and be able to, um, you know, really have an impact on our terms. We've been able to preserve our culture. We were always three days a week at home. We always had a hybrid work environment. So, um, so those are some of the blessings you asked. Actually, here's question three of yours was, do we feel left out? I, we definitely. FOMO. There's FOMO, right? Yeah, there's <laughs> FOMO. I mean, every time you turn around, someone's raised, you know, 10, 20, 50 million dollars. And that's the currency out here in California. That is absolutely the currency in, in the Valley. It's like a milestone. It's a marker of success. Right. And it's so interesting because could you imagine like doing a press release and celebrating getting a $25 million credit line from the bank? <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> it's not, and it's not that different, right? It's not, it's what are you going to do with the money? I mean, I see plenty of companies who've raised, you know, $50 million to get to 30 million in sales. And I'm like, I could do that. Like that, yeah. <laughs> yep. I could turn a dollar into 80 cents. Yes. So exactly. yeah, it, it is. I always think it's interesting, the culture of celebrating the money raising rather than the the actual business accomplishments. I actually equate it. It reminds me very much of the first week I got to Wharton and I looked over at a classmate and I said, wow, can you believe we're here? We're at Wharton. We got in. And he looks at me and says, we got in. Like, we haven't done anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same, you know, it's a very similar notion. So um, do I wish we had raised more money? I think more money would have helped us grow faster yeah. and build our brand. There are things that would have been easier, not worrying about cash. On the other hand, um, you know, we do have a better shot at delivering value. And I think what to our shareholders and you what have more I, control, right? About what, what control. What, yeah. 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 And also, we talked about this, but you see, you know, you see someone raise 80, 90 million dollars. There, there's a very finite amount of options for their business at that point, right? And and I, I we've talked to some investors recently. I think the only valuation that matters is the last one. And sometimes if you raise a ridiculous amount of money. And you miss a few steps, it gets ugly quickly, and no one makes any money in the company. That's no, scary. irrespective of that number that you hear, the company sold for. Like I say, if you if you hear a company sold for hundred million dollars, and you go look on TechCrunch and you see that they raised seventy, and you understand how preferences work, yeah, yeah. no one made any money. Nope. So it often sounds a lot better than I think it was. I think it all feeds into a culture where all of the media attention and the dialogue is all wrapped up in capital because in general, the biggest companies did, you know, other than Google, who raised a very little amount to get where it is, you usually do need a lot of capital to become huge. And media is, you know, is following the fang companies, they're getting all the attention. And I think this is impacting employees as well, as well as well as other entrepreneurs. And I think one of the reasons I love to tell our story is that being an entrepreneur has been a phenomenal career for me. And there's a lot of different forms that can take. It doesn't only mean raising a ton of money and right. where the odds are more likely that you will fail than you succeed. There's other pathways. Yeah. And and I don't think a lot of people realize that. And again, we think about the great resignation now and from an employee yes. standpoint and the type yes. of money, like, you know, these companies aren't making money, they're losing money. So they need to keep raising more money. So they offer you a ridiculous amount of money and some equity, but these also tend to be the ones that just will disappear overnight and it's all gone. We just had two companies this week in our orbit that are just kind of shutting down. I don't, I don't, I think people hear about the winning. I, I don't think they realize, you know, it's always tantalizing particularly now to, oh, that new thing or someone showing money at me, but you got on, these are, these are companies that need to keep raising money to, to keep do. going. 
yeah. And like you said, and then they don't clear their preferences and, and, and it happens a lot. You know, we, yeah. we hear what we hear about is the ones that are successful when things go south. It's like a gambler. No one, no one brags about the hand they lost. They say, oh, I won 800. I'm like, what about the last three times? You're quiet about those, right? You're probably exactly. down 400. Yeah. Yep. yep. It's a lot about someone was just asking me the other day, like what's, you know, the perception of momentum versus the, like the actuality of momentum. And I think that's a lot of what fundraising it is. It's this perception. It creates a perception of, of actually like how successful the company is. Um, Profitability is sustainability at the end of the day, right? If, if if the company are working out losing money, then they can't run out of money and they got to keep, make sure they're getting more money. Right. And, and, I think that's lost on on some people, particularly now. I mean, I'm sure you're seeing, I mean, the salaries are just it's crazy. Really, yeah. You know, we're also seeing a concentration of employers, right? And I mean, yeah. 12 years ago when we founded this business, we didn't have, you know, Google and Facebook and Apple were not hiring um, and employing in the ways they are now yeah. in the early days. We developed a recruiting strategy, much like our own, you know, a corporate strategy where we were very trust-based Yeah, and this is a company for kids. And so very flexible, um, working really hard, but on people's own terms. So two days at home every week, three days in the office. And that was a real differentiator for us over yeah. the last decade. You know, and we were able to build and scale profitably that way. Um, and now you have to continue to differentiate because that, you know, now companies are, are all coming in. And everybody's doing hybrid right now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah. So what's interesting is from a culture standpoint, the one Valley thing that has sort of been dismissed, I think for years, everyone thought that ping pong foods and baristas were culture. And and now that doesn't do anything for anyone. (laughs) Yeah. And this is particular, I was just reading an article this morning. It is, you know, everyone, a lot of people want to be at home full time, but it is over indexing towards working parents yeah. and moms, you know, folks that have a lot of caretaking duty at home. And, you know, as a kid's business, we employ a lot of parents. And so um, we were only uh, ever three days a week in the office. And now the team is, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to get them to come back for two. I think people, we've all settled into yeah. our habits and our routines and there's a lot of benefits to it. Yeah. I think flexibility is, is what people are looking for most. So I'm curious, when the pandemic hit, you know, what did you see? Like you're the type of, I, in your business, I, I, you know, could have, could have tripled, could have gone in half. Like, I, I don't know how it would play out. It exploded. Yeah. Okay. It exploded. March of 2020 was like a second holiday season for us. Could you get product though, or did the supply chain shut down? So I have to credit my my supply chain team. I don't know how they did it. I mean, we, you know what was, is interesting? As a subscription business, you have to worry about both the first products that come in, but yeah. also yeah. you have, you know, with hundreds of thousands of customers waiting on their eighth month or their 10th month. And it was all of that supply chain that our team was really actively managing and, you know, and making sure products got in on time. I, you know, I remember when the factories closed in China and then, and then our distribution, our 3PL in the US got stuck 
uh, I had a lot of workers that had COVID and couldn't operate at maximum capacity. And so we were out of nowhere on a dime overnight. We went from a normal kind of, you know, March is not a huge month for us and went overnight to holiday demand as well as supply chain challenges. Yeah. And we navigated both of them. But, it, you know, I think what it really took as a leader was really getting people energized and excited about the opportunity because it was a lot of scrambling. I remember like literally within two days of the pandemic hitting, getting the team on a call and saying, we really need to pull together a lot of free content quickly because parents, like in a matter of 48 hours are, you know, panicking about how they're going to keep their kids busy at home. And so it was a lot of pivoting out. I mean, the opportunity came out of it as well. We launched a summer camp in a box in response to the pandemic. So, you know, we, we had to be yeah. really nimble. That was the thing. I think everyone, we were, you know, we're big on the overnight camp here in, in New England. And I, yeah. I mean, that was the more most devastating thing for my kids and, and a lot of parents too, that camp was canceled that summer. Yeah. And how, yeah. so did that become your number one seller? It was a big seller. I don't think it, I don't okay. think it overtook subscriptions, but it was definitely a, a big seller, um, you know, but we saw a ton of demand. And then, you know, I'm sure you saw this on your side in the business. And then what the way I've described the pandemic for a consumer, a direct to consumer business is the world changed on us multiple times. Yeah. And so that was the first change of this crazy increase in demand, disruptions in the supply chain. Then we hit holiday last year. And every advertiser on earth went into digital advertising because people were not walking into yeah. stores. And so the cost of advertising went crazy. No, this is a theme. You know, if you look at Facebook, Google, Amazon, prices oh. are up almost 100% year over year. Yep. It's really challenging, right? And so I would say the pandemic had that big boost in demand, but then we've had challenges in the cost of advertising and, um, it's a volatile and unpredictable environment to lead in. And you just have to be ready to pivot really quickly. So, so I'm curious how you think about that, right? You have a business that is about exposing kids to different cultures and yeah. otherwise. The world's been shut down for two years. People have been kept away. Yeah. Xenophobia is, you know, not not from here. It is at all-time high everywhere. Hatred. Yeah. Like, I mean, you must feel like you're sitting on the anecdote to a lot of this, particularly with kids on, you know, exposing them to different people, different cultures. Otherwise we're about to start moving around. Like, how do we, how do, do you have a little passport for adults? Um, like, you know, <laughs> just, we need one. it just seems like some adults could really use this sort of like cultural understanding and tolerance and, you know, differences and that sort of stuff. A hundred percent. We actually do get inquiries from parents who are, or we get comments, we get letters or emails like, Hey, I I'm actually an adult subscribing to this. Can you make one, you know, or can you make yeah. one for maybe for like elder care areas? So, um, I think as we've drawn inward as a globe, as we've each, you know, had to close our borders drawn inward is a very good, good descriptor. Yeah. yeah. You know, and our worlds literally got smaller, our world, like literally got smaller. It challenges us to because it's about a mindset, right? It's exactly what you're saying. So I do believe there's nothing that can replace travel. Taking your kids or traveling yourself to another country and knowing that there are very, very different ways of living, right? And being grateful for the things that we have here, there's no replacement for that. But there are other ways to accomplish it because it is about a mindset. And so I really encourage my own kids and you know and other families to eat foods from other countries. How old are your kids? They are 11, 12, and 15. 
read books from other countries, learn, you know, speak Spanish. That matters to me. But here's the biggest thing. Like there's, you know, you can buy little passports, you can buy books for your kids, you can take them out to, you know, a local restaurant. All of that matters. The number one thing is literally holding a mindset of curiosity. You know, I get into a taxi and an Uber or Lyft. I always ask the driver, where are you from? Tell me about like, you know, I'm, I'm always like chatting people up. I want to hear about their life and their background. And, um, and so, you know, I tell my kids this at the dinner table at night, I have three boys, they're all jockeying to get the attention and they're all waiting for one of them to stop so that they can say what they want to say. And it's, I'm constantly saying, you guys be in inquiry, slow down, listen, ask questions versus just waiting for your chance to talk. Yeah. I, I have personally found travel just getting out of your element, opening your mind, seeing things different ways. I, I remember we went on an extended trip to with our kids to uh, Australia. And one of the things that I wanted to bring back was that unless you were at a really fancy restaurant, right? You always ordered, and this is when the kids were younger, you always ordered at the counter and they they you paid, you know, and they brought you the food. And then as soon as you were done with the meal, you could leave. And I just always think the end of the meal with kids is always this long. And I just kept feeling like this is so much better. Like, how yeah. do we get... Something like, and and just trying to understand things from a different perspective and realizing how much we are biased by our own cultures. So yes. one of the ones that comes up a lot, and I've, I've you know, I, in, I interviewed some of the folks from Union Square Hospitality who rolled this out, is that is tipping, right? The rest of the world yeah. Yeah. does not understand there. And there are people that are so defensive of, of tipping in the US and it's necessary and otherwise restaurant. And the data is pretty clear on tipping in terms of, discrimination and sexual harassment and a lot of things why it's just not, but, but if you, people in the U S talk about how you couldn't and like, but the rest of the world doesn't have it. Like it, it's a really, it just shows you that like somehow these people make a living wage and this and otherwise, and, and it's, it, you give maybe a tip for exceptional service, but they think we're absolutely crazy for this automatic 20% thing here. It just shows you how entrenched a, a mindset becomes. And I always find it interesting when people go, Elsewhere, I mean, there's there's places in London where someone told me, "Do not tip the bartender; that would be offensive." Like they're, uh, you know, in a, in a, like an old school pub, like that's that's their job that they have pride in that. So I, it's a perfect example of just I, I think you tend to assume something you have seen is just the right way when you haven't seen other ways of doing it. Yep, yep, and that's ex- the the examples you just brought up are the exact types of things that I most love about discovering a new culture and a new place. It's the ways we interact with each other, the cultural norms. Um, That's the stuff that I think is really interesting. And I do think if you teach us early, if you teach kids to be curious, to be interested in understanding different ways that people interact in their cultures, as adults, we, we all join new companies. We go to new schools. You're constantly having to to like integrate into a new culture, whether it's a different country's culture or an organization's culture. And these are just great life skills to have, to be open-minded and curious about what makes us different yeah, and what similarities we have. I do truly believe that if we introduce kids to the wider world around them, that we will create a pathway to peace. I really do believe that. If you assume positive intent, if you look at other people and are curious about why they're different versus being afraid. Have you thought about tracking long-term data of the kids in your program and whether they go abroad or whether they do global thing? I know that would have to be a very longitudinal study. 
Well, we're old enough now that we can do it. And it is something that we've brought up and I do want to do it. I got to meet, um, we had a customer fly out recently. Um, uh, she was doing testimonials for TV and she had subscribed. She was a grandma and she had subscribed her kids like 10 years ago. And they would, um, they would video chat about the packages. And now they were major world travelers. I think one was, you know, st- like doing foreign diplomacy. It was really neat. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're reminding me we need to do that work because the stories would be amazing. Well, you touched a little bit on this, but you know, in addition to being a founder and CEO, you're a mom. Like, how do you foster both that curiosity and the global perspective in your kids? Do you, do you travel a lot as a family? Do you let them pick the agenda? Like, what are your what are your strategies? I absolutely travel with them a lot. Uh, that is a number one priority of our vacation time. So instead of going to visit my mom, she lives in the Carolinas, I take my mom on vacation with us so that we can use that time and we're all going somewhere together as a family. So my kids have been to, you know, Japan and and we I got married in Italy a couple of years ago in England. And um they've been they've been around quite a you lot. Got married in, in Italy and England? <laughs> In Italy, no, okay. just got married in Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, visited England. Um, I don't know so, if you were doing like a you know progressive month long wedding. Yeah. wedding. No, 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 just the one. Um, but traveling with kids is really important. But I think the ways I like to show it too is like I speak Spanish. You know, like interacting with the people that live in our town that might have a different cultural background from us. They see me asking like taxi drivers, "Tell me about yourself." I'm role modeling curiosity to them all the time. Asking a lot of questions sounds like just about people. Yeah. My husband says, so my husband, I married, I I got married um, three years ago and my husband, I was remarried. He says that our first date was an interrogation. (laughs) So sometimes the curiosity, I guess. (laughs) Well, clearly he passed the interrogation. Yes, he did. Well, I told him we, we would be friends for a couple months and then we started dating. Um, so yeah, he, he kind of passed (laughs) in the end. He passed. What what has been the most impactful trip or place that you visited? I know I know this is a hard hard it's like picking your kids. Yeah, I know. So I, I think the first time I traveled to developing countries really changed my understanding of what it means to be an American and everything that is incredible about this country. And so when I went to Latin America in my 20s, I spent two months traveling, backpacking through Venezuela and Ecuador and spent two months living with families in Argentina and Mm -hmm. Mexico. And those five or six months, not just cultural differences, um, but wealth, um, the amount of resources, you know, governments have for all that we don't like our governments in the U.S., um, there is unbelievable corruption in in you know some Latin American yeah. countries, and so real, real conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and so that was a real I you know personal safety in some of the cities there, and so that was a real eye opener for me. And I think one of one of the beauties of traveling is coming to appreciate what you have. It's a way to have perspective. And, yeah. you know, on what you have, but on what could be better too. Interesting. All right. Last question for you. What's a personal or professional mistake that you've made? This could be singular or repeated that you've learned the most from. Um, I think the biggest mistake I made as a professional was not getting mentorship earlier, not tapping into mentorship earlier. I have a phenomenal mentor right now. 
And I learned so much from him all the time and it's really accelerating my learning. So I, I, you know, it's hard to find mentors. I think it can be hard. Um, I think as a woman, I also found it hard There, you know, there are less women in, in leadership 20, 30 years ago, there are less women, but if you can really try and go find one who is incredible and you have an authentic relationship, that's been a game changer for me. Yeah, I would say you should try to get the person who shouldn't say yes to you as being a mentor, right? That's the that's going to be a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. yes. All right. So, Amy, how can people learn more about, uh, or where can people learn more about you and Little Passports? So head on over to our website, www.littlepassports.com. And you can uh, learn more about me and the products that we have. All right, great. Well, thank you for joining us. Loved hearing uh, about your story. Um, and like I said, my son enjoyed the boxes for for years. And I am, I think the last couple of years is for me, I, you know, my kids enter this age where we can travel really easily. And then we were shut down for two years. So yeah. I know I'm, I'm really looking forward to oh. getting back to traveling with them. Yeah. It's going to be a great fun next year for traveling. And in the meantime, families can go out and gift little passports for holiday and get everyone in the mood. Yeah, that's right. Get them in the mood. All right. Thank you so much. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Amy, little passports and their work at the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Till next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.